0: Know what I am going to do to you now? No. Did you ever see an animal skin, Yarmar?
1: <laughs> That's what I'm going to do to you now. Tear the skin from your body, slowly,
0: bit by bit. Listeners of the Monster Island Resort, and welcome to another episode of the Monster Island Resort podcast, your online radio show that goes bump in the night. I am your host, Miguel Rodriguez, and I'm back from a bit of a hiatus concerning this particular vacation spot online, but it's good to be back, and I have something very special, a great episode, actually a great couple of episodes, to usher in both the new year and and my own resurrection back from the podcast dead. For the next couple of episodes, we're going to be examining the life of author Edgar G. Ulmer, who directed such classics as The Black Cat and the film noir Detour and the sci-fi film The Man from Planet X, as well as a whole host of other films. He was quite prolific and has been known as the king of the bees for his placement in Poverty Row Cinema and b Movie Cinema. A new book has just come out called Edgar G. Ulmer, A Filmmaker at the Margins. The author is a man by the name of Noah Eisenberg. He's a professor and film historian, and the book is really excellent. I just finished it and had a chance to speak with the author at one of his book signings at D.G. Will's Books in La Jolla, here uh, just north of San Diego. We had a great time talking about Ulmer and his life and and the experience of writing the book. And uh, that's what we're going to listen to now. But first, let's open with quite a funny little anecdote about Ulmer that Eisenberg read from his book while we were at the book signing at D.G. Will's Books. It's a really funny little anecdote about Ulmer's directing the actress Hetty Lamar, and it's one of the times that they butt heads and Ulmer's explosive reaction to that so let's listen
1: they've had a very tempestuous relationship on the set of The Strange Woman and also off and it's Unclear, I, may, I imagine the lure must have been uh, financial as to why he would collaborate with her once more, and it's the only production in which he stormed off of the set midway, that he didn't, they didn't finish. Whatever his motive, Omer and Lamar picked up where they'd left off, sparring from the very start. The Scottish-born actor John Fraser, who plays opposite Lamar in the first part of Three Queens, recalls experiencing the fiery interaction between the star, actress, and Ulmer on the set. Prior to shooting, Fraser had managed to offend Lamar, who purportedly brought with her not only her own personal assistant, but also a full-time psychiatrist, by offering unsolicited advice. Our scenes together were not easy, since she refused to talk to me. All communications were therefore through the director, Edgar Ulmer, who was Austrian by birth and Jewish like Hedy, which might have led one to expect a warmth of feeling between them based on shared history and tribal loyalty, but this was far from the case. Their relationship was bitter and hate-filled and spectacularly stormy. The real drama ensued when Hetty, not especially eager to share the spotlight with anyone, let alone with a young no-name actor like Fraser grabbed hold of his head, ignoring the script altogether in a way that only an egomaniacal and self-consciously aging star might do, removed his wig and planted his face deep in the cleft between her breasts. (laughs) (laughs) As as Fraser dryly quipped, most men would willingly give up all thoughts of a career (laughs) in cinema to have this experience no fewer than ten times before Edward's patience broke. (laughs) Each time this occurred, Ulmer interrupted Lamar's machinations, yelling at the top of his lungs, Cut! allegedly biting into his arm to keep from having an apople- apoplectic fit. <laughs> the resulting clash recounted by Frazier, accent in all, deserves full citation. Mish Lamar, he groaned when he had removed his uh, savage limb from his between his teeth. The way you turn the boy's head, we cannot tell if he is a man or is a woman. We cannot tell if the hairy thing you hold in your hands is animal or human beings. We cannot tell if this human being is, is animal, is it alive or dead. And what is more, we cannot see his face. We don't care. Miss Lamar, I am the director on this fucking rubbish. And you will do what I say. We will shoot the scene with a duel if you do not let this boy's face. <laughs> we do a
0: routine later. <laughs> that story just cracks me up, particularly the impersonation of Ulmer. But anyway, let's go on to the the meat of the episode now. Let's listen to. The conversation I had with Noah Eisenberg all about his book and about the man Edgar G. Ulmer himself. I start by asking him who he is and how he came to writing this book.
1: I always was something of a film geek. Mm-hmm.
0: I went at the University of
1: Pennsylvania so I would, I would go to art house screenings of whatever whatever they were showing. I remember going to see early Pedro Almodovar and you know, Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee and they said alternative stuff Mm -hmm. from both American indie scene and then also films from across the globe. But it wasn't until I was in grad school and doing my PhD up at Berkeley that I really began to immerse myself more fully in the kind of history of cinema. There I studied with a man named Anton Kays, who goes by Tony Kays, who was not only a professor in the department in which I completed my PhD, which is German studies, but he also, he ran the the undergraduate film studies program. Mm -hmm. Uh, I TA'd for him in in his course on Weimar Cinema, and he also would teach film noir, and that was really, my initial exposure to film noir, and I think that's the first time actually that I saw Detour. I saw it, I Mm -hmm. think, at at, at PFA, the Pacific Film Archive, and I think it was like a really grainy Mm 60-millimeter copy that they had, and... I was just sort of blown away by it. That's also around the time, though, that in terms of the kind of two most well-known films by Edgar G. Elmer, I think, that, that uh, Detour and The Black Cat. Mm-hmm. And it was also around the time that I started watching The Black Cat and watching and re-watching and... <laughs> getting kind of uh, perverse pleasure from it as the film seems to that's the kind of response that the film seems to elicit in in, in its
0: audience certainly for um, the time it's it, every line is yeah. much more intense than some of its contemporary yeah films. for sure yeah. and it is kind of deliciously sly and subversive not only in the
1: script by Peter Rurik you know he wrote a lot of pulps mm-hmm. and contributed to Black Mask but also in the, class, the use of the classical score and, mm-hmm. and just how completely innovative and radical that was and then the visuals of course that's definitely a film that stuck with me and it was only later when I was teaching after Berkeley teaching at, at Wesley and I started to teach some of the, f- of the films by Omer. that I decided I need to really get to know more about this crazy director who seemed to lie at any chance he got or, <laughs> or at least embellish if not lie outright I've, I've, I've kind of learned to, to appreciate a, a much more have a much more capacious uh, understanding of truth and lies than I
0: think I did before the book follows a structure where it begins quite biographical, mm-hmm. look at Ulmer's life, and it goes on to an examination of his filmography. Yeah. But the biographical part is colored by this idea that a lot of it may be filled and riddled with untruths yeah. or, or, yeah. or half-truths, and there's this question that I kept asking myself as I read your book how much does it matter in this right. as uh, in this time that we are now yeah in the end i think it really does and especially the
1: episode with the, the point at which you land yeah. the last the last the, at the time in which we are now that point absolutely i think mm-hmm. it really i mean i don't know whether you've had the chance to see sarah polly's last film stories we tell i
0: haven't but i've heard nothing that, but wonderful yeah, things about it yeah
1: it. it's a very powerful film especially in the bearing that it has on a figure like Ulmer, too right. And if, I mean, you'll get a chance to see it at some point, but one of the things that she shows in that film, and it's kind of like playing the game of telephone, or Ariane Mm Omar-Sipes, we did a little seminar in conjunction with the two weekends of screenings at the Film Society of Lincoln Center over the Mm -hmm. past two weekends, and we were meeting with the students, and she talks about it as a kind of Rashomon effect, you know, that, that, you know, you have these four different stories, or four different versions of the same story, and you're left in the end, in the case of Kurosawa's film, or in the case of Sarah Polly's film, to ask, what is really the truth, or is, and even more so, you ask the left: Is there a real truth? Mm-hmm. You know, and the writing of history from the very beginning has always been a, you know. A, a matter of telling exactly yeah. of various so-called facts, mm-hmm. and then storytelling. I mean, historiography is all about storytelling.
0: Yeah.
1: And so, when writing this biography, one of the things that I—and this is, this is a term that I don't use that <laughs> frequently—and I'm not even sure I totally grasp what its full meaning is. But I—and the term is, is creative nonfiction,
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: because when when thinking about the project and writing it, there is a certain aspect. I had, there was a certain like poetic license that I allowed myself to have, especially when it morphed from being, you know, over a decade ago when I first began and was going to just do a very straight, scholarly study of Mm -hmm. the cinema of Edgar G. Omer, and it Mm -hmm. morphed into this full-scale critical biography, I realized that the only way they could possibly do this, given how elliptical, how many gaps and omissions there were in various parts of his life, I had to allow myself I had to grant myself yeah. that leeway that freedom
0: yeah it's like you had no choice in a way yeah it, no. if you were re- if you were relying on possible fabrications right or embellishments well, then
1: well even the Peter Bogdanovich three session interview which is so totally important for anybody who wants to tell the story of Omer and we all go back to it it was done in 1970 just two years before Omer passed away he'd mm-hmm. already suffered from a number of strokes he was extremely worried that he was going to be forgotten forever yeah and it's a pretty puffy interview, and he says all sorts of things. Some of them are in fact definitely verifiably true, mm-hmm. and there are other things that are just you know you're, you're, you're wondering and i've listened to the audio cassettes too, and you can even tell listening to the tone of his voice when you hear these tapes that you know i'm not even sure he believes what he says yeah, 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 right 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 yeah. and I think that he wanted so badly at that stage, especially when he knew that it, was, it wasn't going to be possible to make any more movies. Mm-hmm. He wanted P and kind of wanted to go down history as somebody who had been, if not. You know, there's this, in, I think it's in the 2,000-year-old man, that Mel Brooks and Carl uh-huh. Reiner largely yes. improvised skits that they would do, where he says, there are the, the great and the near great. So uh-huh. if he wasn't going to be the great, at least he was the near the great. The great. The at least he was, And you know, that's always in a sort of very thick Yiddish accent. But the near great, those are people who at least were, were close to greatness. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he, he worked with more. Now, that's verifiable. Mm-hmm. He worked with Reinhardt. That's verifiable. He did People on Sunday, Mention Am Sonntag, in the summer mm-hmm. of 29, with Billy Wilder and Robert Ziedmack, and yeah. the an you know, illustrious, illustrious crew. An amazing so film. so, so, yeah, absolutely, one of my all time favorites, and yet, in writing this book that took me a long time to write, I waded through lots of materials and you know went down a lot of dark alleys and came up short, yeah didn't get mugged, but um <laughs> came up short, you know, came up basically with nothing in certain moments and then needed to come up with plan B, but in doing it and going to Vienna and spending large periods of time going to berlin and, and spending large periods of time working in the archives at the Margaret Herrick Library Mm -hmm. of the Academy of Motion Pictures, uh, uh, Arts and Sciences, I finally just realized, you know what? If I'm not going to completely print the legend, I'm at least going to incorporate some of these really colorful stories that have been told over the years by him, by his Mm -hmm. daughter, by his wife, by others, because without them, I just don't think we would have Ulmer. No. I just, I mean, there's so much apart. I mean, there is a certain point at which you tell a story so many times that you really you do start to believe it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Bertrand Tavernier, the film, French filmmaker, he makes this point that they uh, quote from it in the first chapter of the biography that it's really those stories that are m- seemingly most outlandish most impossible. Those ones turn out to be true. true. It's these little <laughs> petty lies that are nothing more than, you know, kind of fabrications. Yeah,
0: that's that's a really interesting point. Yeah. yeah.
1: It, it was a very difficult life to render in a clear-cut prose. Yeah.
0: I think you mentioned many times a, a certain critic, or perhaps it was a contemporary, I don't really recall, who referred to Ulmer as Hollywood's greatest liar. Oh yeah,
1: that's Lottie Eisner, who wrote one of the two most important histories of Weimar cinema. Mm-hmm. You have Siegfried Krakow's from Caligari to Hitler that mm-hmm. appeared in this country in 1947 and you have lotte eisner's the haunted screen uh la crème demonique i think is what it was called in, in in french just just a few years later than crack hours uh, after crack study and she refers to him as the greatest liar in the history of cinema <laughs> and i remember i had that kind of buried i even think it was in a footnote and i've, I've worked with a really great editor at california a woman named mary Frances. Mm-hmm. And she was extremely helpful through this process and there were definitely moments in this very protracted experience of 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 working with me of where we weren't even sure whether this thing was finally gonna to come to an end. But she's like, You know what, you, you can't have that buried in a footnote, you gotta yeah. get that up front and center. Yeah. That is just so <laughs> fundamental. And she was so so right. And so I'm I'm enormously grateful for Mary Frances for insisting that I do that, and I think that that became not only one of the critical assertions, and mm-hmm. a means of also counterbalancing some of these other tall tales that have been yes. told about him over there, that he himself told, and that have been told about him over the years. that You know, there has been kind of a bit of a Olmer mythology, and 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 as Tavernier says, he was a bit of a mythomaniac himself, <laughs> and so getting that naysayer in there, getting Luffy Eisner, and she she was such a powerful figure anyway to have have that comment. And look, I'm not sure whether he actually was one of the greatest lies. I think a lot of filmmakers, especially as they're beginning to shape their careers after Mm -hmm. leaving somewhere else, so these emigre filmmakers especially, they all came up with a public persona and embellished their pasts.
0: If he is the greatest liar, that's an assertion no one can prove, of course. But... How much of that comes from being an émigré, yeah. many of whom changed their names when oh, they yeah. got to the States, many of whom had to invent some kind of history Achieve. to leave and to arrive? Absolutely. And then you have these émigrés who had to do all that, in addition to having a career built out of, essentially, storytelling and lying and yeah. coming up with fabrications, filmmaking, poetry, writers. How much of that just it just becomes a fabric of who you are?
1: Well, it definitely does. I mean, I think the great example of that, Elmer certainly is one of the greats, and and I'm hoping that now people will think of him in the same light that they think of someone like Mm -hmm. Billy Wilder. Yes. Who was a contemporary of his. They both worked on People on Sunday in that fateful summer of 1929. Wilder came to this country, and he told all sorts of wonderful stories about his past. He was a gigolo. He, he, too, had been born in Vienna. No, they, they, he hadn't been born, be born in Vienna. Omar wasn't born in Vienna. Preminger wasn't born in Vienna. They all claim to be born in Vienna. Yeah, but
0: it's just like someone, a celebrity nowadays, saying they're from New York right, or exactly. from Los Angeles right, right, and exactly. they're really from Orange County or something. Right, or Albuquerque. Or Albuquerque, right. yeah, precisely.
1: And, you know, Albuquerque may not have as much cachet, or Olmutz, the, the, the town that's currently is part of the Czech Republic in which Omar was born, doesn't have the same cachet, cachet as, as Vienna. Certainly not mm. turn-of-the-century Vienna, you yeah. know. Ulmer's born in 1904. I think Wilder's 1905. That was a time when Vienna was really the center of European culture, high right. culture. Now, and so they wanted that, just as they wanted the calling card of you know having worked at UFA and, mm-hmm. and all of that. And Ulmer or you know, with he, Reinhardt or with Reinh- Oh yeah, but exactly. <laughs> Miguel, just so you know, that's really the way that I set out to write this originally, and then it changed dramatically. I right. stumbled upon all. I mean, I, I read all of these the personal correspondences, his his unpublished novels that mm-hmm. he wrote, all stuff. And I'm like. I can't leave that stuff out. That's yeah. got to be, just as that, that the, the assertion that you have by Lottie Eisen, the greatest line in the history of cinema, needs to be somewhere front and center. I figured yeah. it, all these personal writings had to be there too, so it changed.
0: Well, what did you find more fulfilling then? Writing about what you originally intended, an examination of the filmography, yeah. or putting on paper what you, you that, could get of his life yeah. story?
1: To answer that question... And there were times when I there was intense self doubt and mm-hmm. I wasn't sure I was gonna finish the damn thing and I you know, I'd gone down all of these various cul-de-sacs, these dark alleys, these detours if you like, and and came up short and I'm like, am I gonna be able to tell the whole story? It's been enormously gratifying though, and I'll tell you why. One of the re- re- ways in which it's been most gratifying is that by writing a book like this, actually I can reach people who aren't just academics. And I was gonna mm-hmm. write a book that was really for a bunch of eggheads, it was really <laughs> just for film scholars. And I wrote in 2004, so it took me 10 years from the first published piece, which was in Cinema Journal, which is Mm the flagship journal of the Society for Cinema and now Media Media Studies. And that was a piece that I really enjoyed writing. It allowed me the chance to sort of test out my ideas on Ulmer. It was called Perennial Detour, the Cinema of Edgar G. Ulmer and the Experience of Exile. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a chance to kind of also apply some pressure to this notion of exile and explore the ways in which it figures in his larger cultural orbit as well as in his films. So that was all good. And that helped me. But I wrote it, you know, I began by, by quoting from Edward Said's Reflections on Exile, Theodore Dorno's writings from Minima Moralia. You know, it became, it was very much an academic and kind of theoretical scholarly exercise. And not to say at all that it was devoid of pleasure. I, mm-hmm. There was real pleasure. And I'm, I've never been scared to show that pleasure in the way that I write. Right. But by moving away from that, by moving to more of a sort of, of storytelling and a mo- moving uh, towards dr- drawing on the personal writings, on all of these unpublished papers, his, his letters to his wife, to his daughter, to his agent, and their responses, drawing from the exchanges even from the Production Code Administration, the mm-hmm. Hayes Code, the Breen Office, yeah. drawing from all these materials that were kept over the years and are kept in all these archives it enabled me I think to tell a richer I hope at least to tell a a, a richer story and a story that will hopefully resonate not merely with just a very very rarefied group of specialists Mm -hmm. within film studies Mm -hmm. but also with film fans Mm -hmm. and general reader people who like I hope at the end and only the critical reception will tell me but I hope that because the story is so absolutely checkered and colorful that there are people who like to read biography and it's mm-hmm. it is a crazy biography and it was a crazy one to write I'm hoping it'll be kind of an enjoyable and crazy one to read
0: and the other point you're making about reaching out to different tastes yeah is something that I find really important too uh, in fact, right now, as we're speaking, uh, I have a piece on KPBS television right huh? now. Uh, it's a conversation between myself and Nick Ravelis, who okay. he's uh, outreach of education for the San Diego Opera.
1: Okay, I'm doing Paliachi. Oh right yeah, now.
0: we're on PBS talking about the elements of horror that can be found in 19th century yeah. opera. And, and that's just something that a opera people don't think about, right? And b people who would be drawn to the horror genre don't think about, right? I see in an effort to outreach. To but both. this is
1: what we now need to do. We're in this yeah. sort of this 21st century predicament. I think that that bears down on both high culture and pop culture and makes mm-hmm. them get into some sort of productive conversation with one another. Something that Omer did throughout his career, by the way, and but, almost but,
0: not his own choice. In, right, some, right. Ways. Yeah, yeah, in some ways, yeah, exactly. In some <laughs> cases, it
1: was just. Purely, you know, if this was stuff that the itinerant, you know, director did because it was work for hire and needed mm-hmm. work. In other cases, though, I think he actually enjoyed pitting together these otherwise completely oppositional elements and seeing yes. how they came into conflict and into play with one another. What I was going to say anecdotally, and I'm eager to see the piece on KPBS, so maybe I can catch it. I don't know whether it maybe it's be. It will be archived. I'll like, send do uh, Please do. I'd be curious because... A dear colleague and friend of mine at Lang at mm-hmm. the Liberal Arts College or from the new school, Eugene Lang College, she's a composer. Mm-hmm. And her latest composition she composes opera as well. Is an operatic adaptation of Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. Yes. And I'm gonna go see the, the premiere very soon. And she too is trying you know, so she takes this very, very popular novel by by Tom Wolfe. She was involved in the writing the Libretto as well, but also the you know, the music and needs to something I haven't I haven't yet seen it, but I'm especially yeah. eager to see it because the object lesson that I learned with my training in German studies and being in, German, in a German department originally, is that if you don't communicate outside of your own specialized mm-hmm. niche, you just, you, you dry up and you die. And I that's happened with a lot it. of classical studies is mm-hmm. another example of, that, that faces that similar fate, which is really unfortunate. They themselves are to blame, the practitioners, yes. the academics, who felt that they could continue to sustain themselves in these very, very small, rarefied mm-hmm. circles, circles, very enormously yeah. elite. And Omer is a really good, I think, case for seeing how, as you follow his life and Mm -hmm. career, how very serious, ambitious, highbrow facets of his work or highbrow aspirations that he had in Mm -hmm. his work. Can and and indeed do come into this really really stimulating and exciting conversation with trash with, with the lowest of the low when he's at PRC and he's making or kind of churning out these the
0: you ultimate know, of his the, poverty exactly yeah. exactly these
1: kind of bargain basement <laughs> pictures very very quickly. A lot of them thematically as well. You know, if you think of a movie, I don't know if you had a chance to see it. It's not easy to see because it's not on DVD. But Jive Junction, which I tells the story, now. it's Dickie Moore that went through and trying yeah, to watch his entire filmography. Right film now I've, I've been seeing. I've seen you putting stuff up and doing a link and getting a kind of a playlist on you YouTube it as well I can, yeah. right now. But in, in, in Jive Junction, which is one of his PRC pictures, mm-hmm. it tells the story of this young piano prodigy as you Mm -hmm. tell this is something that comes up over and over again right you'll see that exactly detour Carnegie Hall Mm -hmm. Jive Junction Jive Junction it's a young piano prodigy and he goes out from from New York to LA he's been training with you know this Viennese of Mm -hmm. course a Viennese master and uh, goes out to to high school out in California and ends up needing to play swing music Mm -hmm. and there too just as you find it in Al Roberts and Tom Neal's frenzied improvisation that moves from Brahms to Boogie Woogie and detour and in Carnegie Hall, when you follow the, the protagonist, I'm blanking on his name now, but the protagonist, when you follow his move away from his classical training within the hallowed walls of the great shrine of, of classical music, Carnegie Hall, to playing in a, you know, in a big big band jazz right. orchestra, in J- Jive Junction, too. And so he thematizes it. And I think that the pictures themselves also incorporate aspects of both. So totally inconsonant aspects. Mm-hmm. So you have highly ambitious visual work, so when working yes. with his, his, his cinematographer, especially Eugen Schuftan yeah, Schuftan. yeah, yeah Schufi as he called yeah, him yeah <laughs> Schuftan who Blue you know was the cameraman and, on, on, on People on Sunday and who was yes. and who was on so many of the PRC pictures many times uncredited he couldn't get into the, into the cinema, uh, cinematographer's union so yeah. he uh, and it was only later when he made The Hustler and won right. the Academy Award for black and white cinematography that he really was finally recognized <laughs> but, but he worked on a lot of those pictures mm-hmm. and with Schuftan or with Franz Planer who worked with him on her sister's secret and went on to do Max Ophuls Letter from an Unknown Woman the this Viennese uh, cinematographer. I mean, the visuals are so, so rich and so sophisticated and so ambitious. And then you have, you know, these threadbare set, threadbare or non-existent sets you have. So it's, it's you know, it's that mix. It's that, that really, the, that, that that wonderful blend of, of sort of high and low that I think is really compelling. And I hope that the biography reflects some of that.
0: Yeah, definitely. One thing I was going to ask, and, and you touched on that, is in your opinion, your estimation, what do you think about... His relegation to what you call...
1: The margins. The margins, yeah, yeah, yeah. His yeah. relegation to, ma- to marginal, Marginal cinema, marginal.
0: Do you think in in some way, almost in spite of him, that lends a, an almost unspeakable quality to his films that may not have been there had he succeeded? I think so. I mean, I think that that's really
1: what makes him the true termite artist in Manny Farber's mm-hmm. White Elephant Versus Termite yes, Art Essay okay. that he wrote in 1960 for film. Culture, but that's what really makes him a termite artist. Or I don't know. I teach a lot of Kafka, and there's a there's <laughs> a, there's a uh, I do a graduate seminar almost every every year, every other year or something on, on, on Kafka, uh, one of my great loves as well. And and there's a uh, it was a, a little book that Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari published called Kafka toward a minor literature and the title essay of that toward a minor literature develops this notion of a minor literature mm-hmm. and I think you can think of Omer's films as a minor cinema a cinema that is on the fringes on the margins just as Kafka writing in German as a, a son of Prague and, mm-hmm. and sort of being a minority writing and I think that this is there, there's something analogous to the quality of Omer's cinema and the fact that he did not work for a studio which is not to say by the way and there are several instances in the book where I try to make this as clear as possible it's not to say that would never wanted to work Best. for the studios, because there are indeed explicit really really undeniable unambiguous moments where he says I'm going to be big, studio- you know. I'm going to be the big man on the on the on the Paramount lot. I'm going to make a, an American remake of Blue Angel with Veronica yes, Lake. <laughs> I'm going to do Beggars on Hookback, and then later in, in 1949, after he does Pirates of Capri, where there are all these representatives from the big studios who are looking at the rushes or an early cut of Pirates of Capri. Wow, the, this is the best thing I've ever seen. MGM, no. Paramount, Warner's—they're all going to come after him. And Of course, they don't. But the point is. Not so much to imagine what he would have done had he been a studio man, because he never was, and he never was cut out for it. He didn't get along well with producers in most instances. It was really rare. Leon Frumpkus and him at PRC, they got along quite well, at least for a time, until Frumpkus basically sold him out on Strange Woman. That was the breaking point for PRC, because he otherwise had all that freedom. He really felt sort of a big man on a small lot, Mm -hmm. and you know was pretty much able to choose what he wanted to do. He wrote, he directed, he produced, he did set design, he did all sorts of stuff, and I think it was a really great period in his life, certain in his own telling and in Shirley's telling, but being sold out on Strange Woman, we realized that PRC was making a huge penny on this, and he was getting chump change. Yeah. That pretty much broke it.
0: The blurring of the lines of genres at the time yeah, of Weimars right, the month, right. I really liked that. Particularly, it, it dovetails actually with what we're talking about now, I yeah. think, when you have someone like Ulmer who was able to experiment with various themes of right. what would be disreputable right. cinema. Right, right. Then you have this amalgamation where you have these ideas that in another form might seem pretentious or snobbish. Right. They're lent a kind of authenticity. Yes,
1: and a seriousness yes. to them. So right. if you think, for instance, about the film before he made, The Black Cat, the anti-VD picture, Damaged Lives, I don't yes. know if you've had a chance to see it. I have, but even that, which would otherwise just be a really kind of routinized, instructional film, mm-hmm. he has... Uh, several sequences in there that are really you know incredibly stylized and so because it's in his hands he feels like I've got this training I have a certain eye a certain Mm -hmm. vision and by God I'm going to include those moments in there and they're certainly there Black Cat, just a year later, is obviously much, much more extreme. But even in, the, even in Damaged Lives, I mean, what, for me, what's amazing is Damaged Lives, which would just be sort of, a, you know, an industrial film, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, this is to, to instruct the masses of the risks of, of venereal disease, of syphilis. You know, so it could happen
0: to you even if you're rich and white. Right, right, exactly. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: But there are a number. I mean, that clinic sequence is, is really incredibly stylized.
0: Yeah, fate, almost yeah. like a horror film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, very much <laughs> yeah. so. Very much yeah. so,
1: absolutely. So. Absolutely, and there's a great moment when in The Black Cat, when you have that subjective camera, mm-hmm. they descend, when Karloff and Lugosi descend into the gun turrets. Yeah. And there's just this long, silent shot, a very, very, very long, long take, rather. And and there's that long take that you have also in the clinic that has mm-hmm. that sort of eerie, ominous feel.
0: Like they're taking you with yeah,
1: them. E- exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and it definitely has a horror quality to it. And look, I mean, Ulmer all, all certainly knew, is how he knew the horror films of the Weimar era, and he incorporates those. Uh, I mean, he, he claimed in that interview with Bogdanovich that Junior Lemley, while well, <laughs> Uncle Carl was away, and Junior Lemley gave me free, free hand to, to make a movie in the tradition that we invented with Caligari. Right. See, that we invented with Caligari.
0: <laughs> they took credit for yeah,
1: that. Yeah, of course. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that The Black Cat is a great example of blending that high and low. Well, it it, know, it so came out whole, of a
0: time when the horror films were Frankenstein and, yeah, and Dracula, exactly. But this was not a supernatural horror to no, it. No, no, no. Yeah. This is the horror of the First World War. I mean, it's exactly. really all
1: about the First World War. It's the trauma of the First World War. Exactly. And that's, I, that's I think, what also the what, what links it up with a lot of the films of the mm-hmm. 1920s in Germany that were still kind of digesting the horrors of the First World War. His father dies in Austria. Now, biographically speaking, now, Omer's father dies in Austrian uniform fighting in Italy. And in 1916, he has this, dies of kidney failure. Mm-hmm. Omer has to go identify the body, yeah. bring back the remains to Vienna as a teenager. I mean, deeply, deeply traumatized. That unpublished novel of his, Beyond the Boundary, Mm -hmm. is dedicated to his father and soldiers like him who fell in the First World War. I mean, this is something that he obviously was deeply... And that's in 1935, he writes. It's dated 1935 Hollywood. So just after The Black Cat. So he's still very much kind of reeling from that. It's like it
0: almost informs his entire storytelling. Well, there's
1: just a string of absent fathers in his Mm -hmm. films and these kind of orphaned characters and ethnic pictures as
0: well. Mm -hmm. definitely a very dominant thread. If you could look... Because you, writing this book, yeah. you have had to immerse yourself in the oeuvre of Wilmer yeah. for a long a time. Long time mm-hmm. If you had to give me one sentence that. What he tries to tell us. Because uh-huh. he would sneak in his yeah. thought. That's yeah,
1: a very personal cinema. That's absolutely mm-hmm. right. So what it is that he was trying to tell us, that's such a great question. And I'm not sure, given how absolutely eclectic, how checkered his career was, how checkered his life was that we could distill it to a single a single sentence if we were though the epitaph on his grave is, is talent obliges uh-huh. which is uh, you know how do you read that is it that you are obligated if you have talent if you have the ability mm-hmm. to pursue the dream that's one way and i think that's actually probably what Pretty was nice. meant by, yeah what was meant by it i think there is for omar kind of moral or even aesthetic imperative to pursue your vision. And I think he pursued that vision throughout. And there were more than a couple of, of, of real unmitigated disasters, failures. Yeah. But. In many instances, even in the lowliest of productions and where you would least imagine that someone would be able to... Like Detour. To, yeah, like Detour, where you would be, to have a very, very strong vision and to be able to produce a film that just stands the test of time and still continues to grip us the way, to captivate us the way that a film like Detour does, to beguile us. Yeah. And this is something that I've been trying to wrestle with myself, not just writing this biography, but in, in writing on film in general. You know, one of the things that, that I find... Most intriguing about writing on film and thinking about film and watching film is that element of wonder. Mm -hmm. Something I'm not saying the ineffable. It's not you know, but it is something certainly difficult to describe. And Ulmer's films often have that element of wonder. One of my favorite examples of the magic of motion pictures is actually not in an Ulmer picture, but in Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. Jana mm-hmm. Alexander is playing with that early projection device, I can't remember what the exact term is for it now, where he's casting shadows on the mm-hmm. wall, kind of doing sort of a mix of theater, and just sort of understanding how to tell stories visually. And that's what Ulmer was constantly working into his pictures, is how can I tell stories visually? And I'm not saying that he was always so completely contemptuous of the scripts that were delivered to him, but there were certainly moments when he just really wanted nothing to do with them. You take Carnegie yeah. Hall, for example, right. where he just he wanted to show the power of that hall, and he wanted to show the power, the virtuosity of these composers and musicians. And had to tell this cheesy story, and, and instead, and so there are certain very extreme moments like that. But even in some of the other ones, we may not have been completely contemptuous of the of the material that he was dealing with. We may have actually shown some sympathy. Okay. He mixes that in such a way that also incorporates that element of wonder. Yeah,
0: I think. And that Bluebeard, for me is for me, oh yeah. Bluebeard. I hadn't seen I hadn't seen Bluebeard before reading your book.
1: Okay, and now I'm recommending it to uh, everyone. Bluebeard is I'm going to introduce it up in, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn next month as part of the Nighthawk Cinema, and Bluebeard. I mean, it has that Fanny and Alexander moment. Uh, it, it when when he's doing the Faust, the sort of play within a play, when mm-hmm. John Carradine's there and, and doing the Faust little marionette, that's really extraordinary. And going back to your opera example, the conversation that you were having in mean, KPBS, that's a way to deal with opera that is within a lowbrow mass cultural yeah. medium. It's not for the elite. And you know, he handles it beautifully.
0: There wasn't Framkis Gleary about it? Like, oh, yeah, completely. completely. And in
1: fact, Bluebeard was supposed to originally be done for Universal. He wanted to do it for universally uh-huh. he, when he was sort of banished from you know Carl Emily's Powerful dynasty yeah, of the universal. That's another story. He then does it for another story for PRC. <laughs> but just what I I try to draw an analogy there between Uncle Carl Lemley, as he was called, and Frumkis, in that both of them were deeply suspicious. Lemley concerning the classical score, mm-hmm. Frumkis concerning the use of Faust material and doing this operatic yeah, highfalutin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But same suspicion. Same suspicion mm-hmm. of high culture. And with Omer, what I think is so uh, refreshing, is that on the one hand he has these real highbrow aspirations and wants to draw if you like elitist thai culture mm-hmm. but he mixes it then with the gutter you know he mixes yes. it with the sort of the plank, cultural plankton that he scrapes up from like
0: you Austin know from wild from, from the us. yeah yeah yeah, yeah <laughs>
1: absolutely and so he yeah, they're, they're, I, I, try to make at least one affinity very clear in that introduction with uh, with Oscar Wilde and in his writings on The Decay of Lying. But um, I think that there is something to that that makes him
0: rather special. That's a great place, I think, to stop. Okay. Yeah. Oh, terrific. Miguel, well, thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Noah Eisenberg, author of Edgar G. Ulmer, a filmmaker at the margins. You will get some information on how you can get the book in the show notes on monsterislandresort.org. dot org. As well as a look at some of Ulmer's films and some suggested viewing in case you want to explore this filmmaker a little bit farther than just maybe the Black Cat or perhaps Detour that you may have seen. Please follow me on Twitter. My handle is at MonsterResort. And also, of course, on Facebook. Mostly I'm on my personal page there. On Twitter, we have lots of Twitter conversations. I do believe this episode is going to be of interest to my friends at the Drive-In Mob, and uh, perhaps even more so to my friends at the TCM Party. Both of those groups of people are live tweeters. We get together and watch films at the same time, tweeting with hashtags Drive In Mob or hashtags TCM Party. Uh, TCM Party is, of course, films on Turner Classic Movies, and Drive In Mob is every Thursday doing a different film. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to take part as much lately. I've been extraordinarily busy with, gosh, so many film screenings every month. And uh, that's actually what's cut into my podcasting time, but I'm glad to be back. And look online for part two of my look at Edgar G. Ulmer, where I am having a great conversation with none other than Ulmer's daughter, Ariane Ulmer-Sipes, who has been in some of his films, who heads the Edgar G. Ulmer Preservation Corporation, which preserves his films in their original negatives and uh, does distribution, does a whole lot of stuff, and, and we have an amazing conversation. So definitely check out the next episode of Monster Island Resort. Until then, stay scared.